Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, before we get started with the program, let me uh, just make a, a brief announcement or two. Uh, first of all, I wanted to shamelessly plug the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, this is a resource that we produ produce with uh, members of Congress and Hill staff in mind. It's full of recommendations on pretty much every issue you deal with here on Capitol Hill, uh, ranging from today's topic, health care, to, to foreign policy, taxes, you name it, it's in the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. And this is a publication that is available certainly on our website, cato.org. It's also a resource that we provide to Hill staff uh, free of charge. So if you don't have a copy and you want one, uh, just let me know or, or my colleague back there, Kurt, would be happy to get you a copy. Um, with that, we'll go ahead and introduce our first speaker. Uh, Michael Tanner is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and an expert on a variety of issues, including Social Security, social welfare policy, and, of course, health care reform. He's the author of numerous books, including uh, his latest, Leviathan on the Right, How Big Government Conservatism Brought Down the Republican Revolution. He's also the co-author of Healthy Competition, which is an excellent book. We actually have a few copies on hand here uh, this afternoon, if you're interested in picking it up. Um, I always like to say it's the, the best health care book I've ever read. Uh, to be honest, the list isn't long, but it is really good, and it's worth checking out. Um, so uh, highly recommend that. He's also the author of uh, Massachusetts Miracle or Massachusetts Miserable, a, a, a study that is available on the table outside. Hopefully everyone picked one up on the way in. If not, there should be a few out there uh, to grab on your way out. And with that, I will turn things over to Mike. Well, thank you very much, and I, I appreciate your uh, coming out. Uh, on such an obscure topic like health care reform, uh, one that's getting almost no attention these days uh, from the media or the administration. Uh, still, if you, if you could force yourself to, to pay attention to this and instead of, you know, something, uh, something more exciting, I think it's a very important issue. Uh, three years ago, when Massachusetts passed its health care reform, its historic health care reform, uh, I put out a paper at that time in which I warned that I thought that the Massachusetts reforms would result, quote, in a slow but steady spiral downward toward a government-run health care system. Uh, three years in, I think that that is proving true, and we are in the middle of that spiral downward towards a government-run health care plan in Massachusetts. I think that that's particularly relevant since Massachusetts is so frequently cited by both folks on the left and the right as a model for how health care reform nationally should go. So I think at this point it's worth taking a look at some of the results of Massachusetts three years in and see what they foretell for the type of reforms that are going on on the Hill. Now, just to refresh everyone's memory, just to look at some of the key components, if you will, of the Massachusetts reforms that are seen popping up in national health care reform, the bills that you're seeing coming out of both the House and the Senate. Uh, let's run through just a couple of these. The first is the idea of an individual mandate. That is that everyone is required to purchase an insurance policy, and not just any insurance policy, but an insurance policy whose parameters or whose benefits are defined by the government. That's part of the Massachusetts plan. It's also, as you've seen, it's part of the Kennedy bill. It's probably going to be part of the Baucus bill. It is part of the bill that came out of the House the other day. So we can almost certainly expect to see that. Second is an employer mandate. It's worth noting that in Massachusetts, the employer mandate was passed over the veto of then-Governor Romney, uh, that one portion. Uh, and it is sort of a very modest uh, employer mandate in Massachusetts. They, if you don't meet the mandate, you have to pay a $295 assessment. It's, it's not a particularly big penalty for not meeting the mandate, but there is sort of an employer mandate in there. Again, this is something you're seeing. It's in the Kennedy bill. It's in the House bill that's coming out. A uh, third item is some sort of an exchange. In Massachusetts, they call it the connector. Uh, in the bills that you're seeing talked about now, all over the places, they call them exchanges. There's, sometimes you hear them called portals, uh, various names for it. But it's basically some sort of an artificial marketplace that the government creates uh, in which insurance plans supposedly can be com compared side by side. 
may offer tax breaks for people or subsidies for people buying through the exchange, but it's some form of managed competition, if you will, a marketplace in which, uh, in which people shop. Uh, and then finally, uh, the item it, I would say would be very large subsidies for people to buy health insurance, which of course is necessitated to some degree by the mandate. If you're going to require to buy people to buy health insurance, you need to help them buy it. And in Massachusetts, the subsidies went to 300% of the poverty, about $66,000 a year for people to have to buy, have to buy this uh, health insurance. Those are the, and again, you're seeing these in the, in the Baucus bill, the Kennedy bill, and the House bills, and have generally been praised by President Obama, all of these items. So I think that if you look to what they're talking about here in Washington, and then you look back to Massachusetts, you can see some parallels. So the question then is, what have we learned from three years of Massachusetts? Well, I think, first of all, we can see that, like the sticker shock we're seeing on some of the bills that are being proposed now, we can see that the Massachusetts bill was very expensive and much more expensive than initially believed. Uh, so when we see some of these estimates coming out of CBO, we should recognize that there were estimates in Massachusetts for how much the plan would cost and they were a little bit off. This year they'll be off by a couple of hundred million dollars in Massachusetts, and some estimates suggest they could, going forward over the next ten years, they could be off by two to four billion dollars going forward. Uh, they've already had one tax increase in the state, a dollar a pack cigarette tax increase and a number of fee increases designed to prop up the plan, and despite that tax increase and tax increases that are contemplated for the future, they still find the plan underfunded going forward. Uh, so we've had an enormous burden on the taxpayers of Massachusetts. That might or might not be forgivable if it had accomplished any of its original goals. But it does not look like the Massachusetts plan has actually been successful at, at accomplishing what it set out to accomplish according to its proponents. If you want to judge it by their criteria, uh, when the bill was passed, they promised universal coverage, for example. Uh, Mitt Romney wrote in the Wall Street Journal right after it passed that every single citizen in Massachusetts would now have health care under this proposal. They've missed by a little bit. Uh, the official statistics, of course, in the state, if you look at them, suggest that there's about 2.6% of the state's population is, uh, is still uninsured. That's down from about 10.4% which would be significant improvement. However, there's reason to doubt those statistics. Um, they are in large part based on a telephone survey uh, of people in the state. And there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical of telephone surveys, particularly when it comes to insurance. Uh, a telephone survey is likely to miss those groups that are most likely to be without insurance. For example, people who don't speak English or young people who don't have landlines, uh, the groups, two of the groups that were the largest groups of the uninsured, uh, these are groups that are less likely to, uh, to respond to a telephone survey. And in fact, if you look to other surveys that were done contemporaneously uh, with the telephone survey, uh, they found much higher levels of, of uninsurance in the state. Uh, for example, the Census Bureau did a door-to-door -door survey at the same time this telephone survey was going on, and they found 5.4% of the state's population was still uninsured. And an examination of state income tax returns, uh, the state enforced its mandate by requiring that you, when you file your income tax, you had to file proof of insurance. An examination of state income tax returns found 5% of the state's population uninsured. And since people who were not required to file were more likely to be uninsured than people who were not, we could expect that the actual level of uninsurance was probably higher than 5%. Uh, at any rate, you still have a significant percentage of the population that's uninsured. Similarly, the, while it was touted that the mandate would be primarily responsible for getting people insured, uh, it looks like the mandate did not have nearly the impact as subsidized insurance did in terms of increasing the number of people with insurance. If you look at the people we know have new insurance, uh, since the program went into effect, uh, about 176,000 of them 
are actually receiving subsidized insurance through the, uh, the Commonwealth Care Program that the state has. This is where they're in private insurance, but the premiums are being paid in all or in part by the state. An additional 80,000 are receiving Medicaid uh, from an expansion of the Medicaid program and a rise in eligibility for the Medicaid. So you have about 256,000 people who are now receiving subsidized insurance uh, through the state. Uh, about 147,000 newly insured people are now receiving employer-provided health insurance. Uh, that is, they've taken up insurance that they weren't getting before through their employer. Uh, now that, we don't know if it's because of the mandates. There might be higher take-up because the mandate's convincing people who were turning down employer-provided insurance to, to accept it before. It may also be because of the employer mandate, which is causing people to offer insurance that wasn't being offered before. Of individuals who went out and simply bought unsubsidized insurance on their own as a result of the mandate, only about 40,000 people did so. Uh, so you can see the vast majority of newly insured people received subsidized care or employer-provided insurance, and the majority of those received subsidized care. This suggests that the subsidies had far more to do with the increase in insurance than did an individual mandate, which does not appear to have been successful in universal coverage. We were also told at the time that the Massachusetts plan passed that it would result in lower insurance premiums. It was going to bring down the cost of health care. This is something, again, we hear in the uh, debate going on now. We hear that if we just get everybody insured, it will bring down the cost of health care. Well, that doesn't appear to have happened in Massachusetts. I mean, they, they made promises. Uh, at the time, Matt, Mitt Romney suggested it would, uh, uh, it would make health care affordable for everybody in Massachusetts. Some people went so far as to say it would reduce health insurance premiums by 25 to 40 percent once the plan was in place. The reality is that in, 19, in 2007, the first year after the plan went into place, insurance premiums rose by 7.4 percent. They went up about 12 percent in 2008, and they're expected to rise 9 percent this year. Overall, it's an average of about 10 to 12 percent increases in the, in the insurance premiums in Massachusetts. That compares with a 6 to 7 percent increase nationally over the same period. So the health insurance premiums actually rose by about double in Massachusetts the rate that they went up on a nationwide basis. <clears throat> now, some caveat to that. Massachusetts has always had higher insurance premiums than the rest of the nation. There's a lot of reasons behind it, partly because of the regulatory environment in Massachusetts, which drives up insurance premiums, regulatory environment that was not fixed as part of these reforms, and in part because they practice a much more intensive type of medicine in Massachusetts that uses a lot more high-tech medicine, and that in, in turn also brings up the cost of insurance. But clearly, health insurance premiums did not fall. Even within Commonwealth Care, where they have four uh, insurers that, that compete on the Commonwealth Care, the subsidized plan, uh, they, uh, their premiums were much lower. They were in the 5 or 6 percent increase, about comparable to the national average. But in large part, that has to do with the insurers be, being, number one, browbeaten by the state into temporarily lowering their premiums. And second, because of the way they have an assigned uh, risk system there, people were competing for market share on the sort of a, as lost leaders bringing in down pre, uh, premiums temporarily. Those premiums are expected to rise in the, fu in the future. Uh, so we haven't brought down premiums. We haven't in, uh, we've increased the number of people with insurance, but we haven't gotten the universal coverage. What we have done is increase the cost. The state overall health care spending is up about 28 percent. As I mentioned, we're, uh, the program itself is over a budget by about $225 million this year and expected to be far more going forward. Already has engendered one tax hike. That seems to me to be a lot of pain for very little gain. Uh, let me throw out just one last thing that this has managed to do. Uh, there has now become a physician shortage in the state. As a, uh, that what's happened is that they have begun, oh, I should go, just back up a minute, as a result of these rising costs, we're beginning to see the state begin to employ other mechanisms. Uh, they can't subsidize this forever. So they have begun to, uh, to bring in other mechanisms to control costs. They have a commission now which is looking at cost control mechanisms. 
And that commission is now looking at such things as imposing a uh, capitated payment system on all physicians in the state. It is looking at the idea of, limit, quote, limiting coverage to services that produce the highest value when considering both clinical effectiveness and cost. So they may establish something very much like the National Institute of Clinical Effectiveness in Britain, which limits procedures that are allowed to be paid for in the state to those that they believe are the most cost effective. And again, we can see parallels nationally. The, if you remember, the stimulus bill included $1.1 billion to set up cost effectiveness and comparative effectiveness research on a national level. So we could be following that route down Massachusetts way again. They also are including as a potential option, uh, according to this commission, looking at the possibility of imposing a global budget on healthcare spending in Massachusetts. That's the hallmark of programs like in Canada and so on, where they limit the total amount of healthcare spending that can go on in the state, and that's being considered as a potential option. This brings us back to that physician shortage I mentioned. As these items have been going into place, or at least being talked about, you're seeing physicians begin to refuse to see new patients and limit the hours they practice and so on, at the same time that the subsidies and the newly insured are driving up demand. So what you have is a limitation on supply and increased demand in health care. This is leading to difficulty finding a physician, particularly primary care physicians. The, uh, the wait to see a primary care physician, uh, an internist, has moved from 33 to 55 days since the program was installed. So it's nearly doubled since the program began. Uh, as a result, people are finding it more difficult to see a physician, and while still small, there's a definite impact, about almost 5%, 4.8% of state residents report that they have had to forego care because they couldn't get a, an appointment with a physician. So they've actually had to go without care because they couldn't get in to see a doctor. That's an increase uh, of 1.3 percentage points since the program began. And for low-income residents, it's been even worse. It's 6.9% of low-income residents claim that they've had to not to go without care because they couldn't get in to see a physician. That's up 2.7% since the program began, or almost a third uh, since the program began. So we're seeing very significant increases in waiting time. What we're doing is seeing this run down the road to national health care. If you look at the thing overall, what you see is exactly what was originally warned about. We started with a program that increased subsidies and limited choice. That led to growing costs. That led to caps on expenditures. That led to waiting times. The whole range running right down the road to national health care. Uh, I think there's a lesson in this, particularly uh, for what we're doing on the national level. Massachusetts' biggest mistake was they made universal coverage the lodestone of their reforms that the whole idea of whether or not this was to be a successful reform was did they get a piece of paper in everybody's hands that said they had health insurance. They neglected the all-important issue of cost containment. And by neglecting cost containment, they got us into this cycle of increasing costs and then arbitrary, harsh mechanisms to reduce those costs. Massachusetts could have pursued a much different course. They could have installed much more consumer involvement, they could have deregulated their health care system, removing the mandates, the modified community rating and other ethics that would have brought down health care costs and then expanded coverage that way. Instead, they chose to go with a system that imposed government controls on the individual and on providers and on insurers. The net result was, was government control, higher taxes, busted budget, increased premiums, I think that there's a lot we can learn from that failure. Thank you all very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Uh, our next speaker is Greg D'Angelo. He is a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation Center for Health Policy Studies. Uh, in this role, he studies Medicare, prescription drug costs, health care tax credits, and a number of other health-related issues. Uh, he has also interned at the American Enterprise Institute and the John Locke Foundation in North Carolina. He's currently pursuing a master's degree in applied economics from Johns Hopkins. And uh, prior to that, he uh, received a bachelor's degree from Duke University. We'll try not to hold that against him. Thank you for having me. 
So, as you guys know, three years ago, April 2006, Massachusetts enacted a major health care reform. Um, but enacting legislation is only the beginning of the battle. Uh, a lot can happen after enactment during implementation. And so I think the third anniversary is, is a good opportunity to take a look back and see what passed and what has transpired since. Um, so I'll walk through, through my slides now. So before you discuss Massachusetts, you need to know what led up to the reforms. <laughs> what happened was in 1997, the state had uh, created a, a Medicaid waiver, a Section 115 waiver as it was called. And at the time, they were shifting toward uh, managed care. And so what happened then was they were at the time delivering massive Medicaid supplemental payments to uh, two hospital systems who were treating most of the uninsured and they were concerned uh, about the shift toward managed care that people would be treated elsewhere. So in 97, they instituted these new payments that they were going to give to these two facilities. That continued when their waiver was renewed in 2002. But what happened, it was in 2003, basically, CMS, the Center for Medicaid, uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, started cracking down on Medicaid abuses. What was going on was these payments reached about $770 million a year. The federal share was half of it because it's Medicaid. Uh, and so $385 million a year uh, was going in supplemental payments to two hospital facilities. What was happening was the hospitals were putting up the $385 for the state in order to draw down the federal share of the money. And then they would keep $287 million of it and kick the rest back to the state as sort of a revenue raiser that they gave to other hospitals. And so it was all a, a gimmick. They were gaming the federal Medicaid uh, system, and so CMS was cracking down on a bunch of these financial abuses, and this was just one of them. So they approached Massachusetts as they were renewing this waiver again in 2005, and they said, you know what, this isn't going to happen anymore. You need to think of a better way to use the money. Uh, we think you ought to, instead of dumping this money into big institutions with no transparency or accountability, uh, what you need to do is devise a plan to reprogram those dollars for, uh, moving it from institutions to individuals in order to help low-income persons obtain health insurance. And so that was the plan. In 2005, they came to them and they said, you have one year, so it's find a way to use the money or lose it. And so that's what happened between 2005 and 2006. That's what uh, spurred the debate in the state uh, over the health care reform law. And then their, amendment, their waiver was amended in 2006 after the law was passed. Uh, and so what the state did was they combined these big payments going to these hospitals, $770 million, with their DISH allotment on compensated care funds. Uh, so they had about $1.3 billion a year to help purchase low-income persons' health insurance. Uh, and most recently, their waiver was renewed again. But it's important to understand this background, to understand the financing, and to address some of the claims that have been made. So the reform law. What happened in, in 06 in the reform and in this new waiver agreement? There were two big uh, changes, I'd say. One was a change in public financing. Uh, those reforms, again, included redirecting existing uncompensated care funds uh, to health insurance through a new program called Commonwealth Care. And that was for subsidized insurance for uninsured adults uh, below 300 FPL who didn't have employer-sponsored coverage. They also replaced their uh, existing uncompensated care pool in the state where people would go and get free or subsidized care with the new health safety net and change some of the rules for eligibility and payment. Uh, the second big change were uh, a set of insurance market reforms. So they established the Commonwealth uh, Connector. They merged together the previously separate non-group and small group markets, and they created a new unsubsidized program called ComChoice, uh, offering commercial insurance products to individuals and families, young adults, uh, who directly purchase coverage on their own, part-time and contractual workers, uh, and you know, workers ineligible for ESI, uh, and employees and businesses with 50 or fewer workers. Um, the reform also uh, ha had the infamous individuals and, and employer mandates, which were things that we at the time uh, opposed, um, but individuals 18 and older were required to buy health insurance if it was deemed affordable or pay a fine. And employers with 11 or more full-time employees had to make a, quote, fair and reasonable uh, contribution toward the cost of their health, health insurance for their employees. Uh, and they're also required to set up Section 125 plans. Um, another key piece of the plan, which we were opposed to at the time, was a Medicaid expansion. They extended eligibility from 200 FPL to 300 FPL for kids. They increased outreach and enrollment. 
They restored a number of benefits. And at the end of the day, uh, in the final stages of the law, as you'll see here um, on, sorry, I didn't change the slides, overview. And as you'll see here during the Medicaid uh, piece, um, these major uh, supplemental payments that were supposed to go away. So what happened was the state had the supplemental payments, they combined with the uncompensated care funds. And so the theory was, as the money was taken from the hospitals, that was the core funding source. As more people gained insurance through ComCare, uh, more of those dollars from the free care pool would be redirected toward coverage. So what happened in the law, though, was that new payments were made to these two hospital systems under a new name. So basically, the state uh, tried to pull a fast one on everybody. Um, and I'll get to that later. Uh, the last thing that happened was there were some measures to address cost and quality, despite what, what some have claimed. There, there were some efforts uh, through increased transparency. So we can debate whether those are, are good or not or what has happened during implementation, but there were uh, some. So what are the, the facts on the ground here? Well, two years in, 97.4% of Massachusetts residents uh, have health insurance. Only 2.6% were uninsured. It's the lowest rate in, in the country. Over a similar period, uh, uncompensated care visits uh, and, and payments went down by 36% and 38% respectively. Uh, at the time of enactment, an estimated 400,000 to 650,000 uh, people were uninsured. Uh, so since that time, about 430,000 have obtained coverage. And now estimates show that about 167,000 remain uninsured. So in essence, that's roughly a 70 to 75% reduction in the uninsured. Um, one thing you'll notice, and I'll get back to it later, is you have a 70 to 75% reduction in uninsured, but only a 36 or 38% reduction in free care. And there's some very good reasons for why that happened that can be explained. So uh, just to look at this more carefully, these, these coverage numbers actually that I have here are based on a headcount of enrollment, not a telephone survey, um, but it does sort of corroborate the telephone survey that, that Michael was talking about. Um, what these do show is private coverage. It shows the, the change since June 30, since enactment. Private uh, group coverage, employer coverage, went up 149,000, which is pretty unprecedented in some ways. Uh, individual per individually purchased coverage uh, basically doubled. It was 40,000 when reform started. It increased by 41,000. It doubled. So that's, pr that's pretty unprecedented. Half of that new coverage came through the new connector. Half of it came outside of the connector because you can still buy the same policies uh, outside of it. Uh, the new ComCare program, about 163,000 people were on it as of uh, December 31. That was the change. Mass Health through the expansion to uh, new kids and enrolling the eligible but not enrolled, there's about 76,000 people who are added um, for a total of 428,000. But again, this is a head count. Uh, and some of the numbers that were referred to, the census numbers, are for 2007. Those are old news. Those don't apply. Uh, the same IRS tax data that was referred to was from 07. So we're past then. Uh, but if you were to compare the survey and this headcount of enrollment with census projections of the population looking at the coverage and the changing coverage, you would find very similar uh, figures as what I was talking about in terms of the percent reductions. So if you look at the new coverage on the margin, basically... This shows that ESI and non-group uh, accounted for 44% of the gains. So 44% of coverage was through pri the private sector. Um, the other was through ComCare, some of whom paid premiums, some of whom didn't, and then MassHealth, which is Medicaid. So ComCare, this is the program for new subsidized insurance. I'll try to run through this. But basically, what the state did as a deal, because they were moving the monies away from these big hospitals, they said, for the first three years, you guys will get market exclusivity, you and two other health plans in the state who operate in Medicaid. And it was a political deal. It wasn't good policy. And uh, that actually just ended uh, this June, this month. Uh, and there's a new plan that's joined since. But basically what they did with ComCare is they created plans by income. Uh, and so I basically give you the timeline for different plan types. This is key because they started enrolling the lowest income people first. And some of them were automatically enrolled. So that's why you see some of the biggest coverage gains there. Again, you have to consider the timeline for implementation to put this thing into perspective. Um, this uh, next slide shows the enrollment by plan type. Uh, what it shows is some of the lowest income people were enrolled first. I mean, indeed, they were auto-enrolled. Uh, the other thing that it shows 
is uh, two other things. One is that uh, premiums for plan type 1, there's no premium. For plan type 2A, um, they basically didn't pay, they paid premiums, but they were eliminated in 2007, which was something we were against. I think, you know, everyone ought to pay something. Uh, but you notice a spike in enrollment there as well because, well, it became free. And then they were auto-enrolled. It's pretty obvious. Um, but then you also notice on the top line above how enrollment in ComCare has peaked. It peaked midway through last year and actually has fallen. It's only beginning to rise again, but it's peaked at 180,000, and that's key because a lot of these budget figures you're hearing for ComCare are based on an estimated enrollment of 345,000, which nobody believes there are that many people in the state to even potentially insure, let alone who are eligible. Um, so this next slide shows premium versus non-premium paying. It just shows how when you eliminated some of the premiums in July of 07, that those shares changed pretty significantly, which is a problem. Again, this shows that. So type 1 and type 2, 73% pay no premium in ComCare, which I, I view that as a problem. I think they should have never gotten rid of premiums for plan type 2A. So enrollment by MCO. What this shows is the two big hospitals, BMC and CHA, I refer to you, the ones getting these massive payments who the money was supposed to move, be moved away from, they did bid low in the first year as... as um, Michael uh, referred to, and I agree that that was a problem, but they were also getting these new subsidies, these major subsidies, so it wasn't really a level playing field. And in fact, they have 75% of the market now in ComCare, so little choice. Um, and that explains some of the access problems, too, because they have the same provider networks. So ComCare budget. So I'll, I'll, I'll whiz through these, but we can, we can talk about this a little later in the question and answer. But basically, this shows that uh, some of the estimates were just wrong and too high, uh, the cost is, is a little higher than initially estimated for fiscal year 2009. Instead of 725, it's going to be more like 788, 800. But given the plan's design, they had a budget of 1.4 billion or so, I'll show you on the next slide, that was not a problem. More money going to coverage, less going to uncompensated care. That was the point. The last two, uh, the, the second to last is what they actually spent. The far, farthest one on the right is uh, the state discloses information to uh, uh, Wall Street, basically. And, and those numbers were, were culled from there. And then the, also the state had some internal estimates. And part of this was during their waiver negotiations last summer, they were trying to get more money by claiming we were a victim of our own success. We have too many people. So they, again, they said we had 345,000 potential people who could be here. We're at 175. Right? They were trying to get more federal dollars. Um, it was all a game. Again, if you added the coverage numbers up, there weren't enough people in the state. Most of the residual uninsured are illegal immigrants as well. Um, reform financing. What this basically shows, though, is if you combined the old MCO SUPs on the left with, um, with uh, the uncompensated care pool, their money they're spending, you have $1.4 uh, billion dollars to spend. And if you look at the first... So that's pre-reform, fiscal year 2006. Fiscal years 2007, 08, and 09, if you look, and if you eliminate the top two bars, Section 122 and MCO caps, those replaced the old payments. It was a, quote, hold harmless provision in law where these hospitals got the $287 million each year paid to them, uh, and that was the core funding source. So it was over budget because they took the core funding source away. It's sort of a no-brainer. Um, but if you got rid of those payments, funding problem goes away. Uh, also, again, I can address the uncompensated care pool um, was not going down as fast as it was supposed to because they didn't initiate the reforms until just late, late in 2008. And so people who were on ComCare were still getting free care, among other problems. And so, well, there was effectively no change in policy. And so that's what you'd assume you'd say. Uh, but the point is, if the state took the money away, if it followed its plan, there would have been enough money. I'll caveat that by saying that's not support for the details of how they did ComCare. I don't think they should have been micromanaging it, designing plans. I believe, you know, you give the subsidy directly to the people and let them choose in a competitive marketplace. But the point is, is there was enough money there. That wasn't the issue. Uh, people voted quickly with their feet, but politicians and bureaucrats didn't move the money. Uh, ComChoice. So this is the unsubsidized program. I'll run through this quickly because I'm already out of time. But this was uh, the unsubsidized program through the connector. Uh, it's different from ComCare because it's done through a competitive bidding process. The connector doesn't really negotiate or anything. Um, 
They, they tier plans by gold, silver, bronze. There are mandate light plans for young adults. Um, and so there are three different products. There's ordinary products for individual purchasers and young adults. There's, quote, voluntary plans, which are for, like, Section 125 plans. An employer sets it up for you. Sets up a one, Section 125, you can pay uh, your premiums and pre-tax dollars. And uh, there is a, quote, contributory plan, which is a defined contribution option for small employers under 50. That was just started in February 2009. This was something that went way under the radar. But if you look, again, the subsidized stuff happened first. Because the waiver, the feds were holding the money over their heads. They, were, they had to use it or lose it. So the market stuff happened later. So it got a slow start. In fact, again, this just started February 2009, and it's a pilot project. It was downgraded because of some of the controversies we could talk about. <coughs> so uh, Comp Choice Enrollment is now about 22,000, um, and that's about half of the non-group take-up. If you look at it by product, it, again, it shows that most of it was through individual purchasers. If you look at uh, and young adults, if you look at the voluntary plan, that's been very small. We could talk about why that is. The contributory plan, it's a pilot project, so clearly that's why uh, enrollment is very low there at the top. Um, but, you know, it just started, and it's, and it's a pilot. But that was one thing that conservatives really liked. I mean, the connector was a means for small businesses to define contribution to their workers. And so we should hear more of an uproar about what's holding this up. Why isn't it working? Uh, I think there hasn't been enough discussion of that. If you look at enrollment by benefit level, what this shows basically through these different tiers is that the highest enrollment plans are bronze uh, and silver and the young adult plans. Why? Because health insurance is expensive in Massachusetts and people value choice. Um, if you look there, this is by carrier. There actually is some sort of competition. It's a small market, but pretty, pretty widespread. So now I'll, I'll, I'll just try to wrap up. Um, this is the individual mandate, which we can talk about later. Employer mandate, which I agree mostly with what has been said. The one thing I will note on the employer mandate is late last year when the state was running out of money, because they weren't moving money from the hospitals, the first people they looked to were the employers. And they wanted to raise the assessment. They wanted to pass a uh, cigarette tax, do all of these things. My key point is that that was all a hoax, that none of that had to happen. Uh, and my warning on the employer mandate is it, is, um, it sets a bad precedent and opens up the door for more government involvement. Uh, the last thing is this cost and quality. There was a cost and quality commission created under the law to foster greater transparency, publish information on data, data on price and quality and things. They've issued some reports, uh, put up a website, but they've faced major setbacks, and no one has discussed this, which is very bizarre. Basically, they've been slowed. They've been defunded. Their staff was fired. Um, this was a very interesting little two-step because at the same time, the Patrick administration... Uh, enacted another law, which was not a part of the reform law, but they passed Chapter 305 in August 2008 while all this stuff was going on. The program was over budget because they weren't moving the money. Um, they were slowing the Cost and Quality Commission, and they passed a new law to set up this special commission on health you know, reform payment. Uh, and as Michael um, said, they're trying to move from fee-for-service to an all-payer rate-setting commission and uh, system and global budgets, which obviously is harmful. That's just the wrong way. And so the lessons from Massachusetts, I'll run through real quick here. Um, on the public finance side, the failure to shift money away from these hospitals through the hold harmless provision was the primary reason for new and unnecessary taxes and assessments. The state was too slow to reform its free care pool. People were still, were still showing up even when they're insured. There's a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse. There were uh, studies in 2005 by the uh, state attorney general. They've, they've been uh, investigating it and charging people now. Uh, Comcare enrollment was faster but not higher than expected. If you look at the initial waiver, they basically said they'd have around 200,000 people. Most estimates show it's going to level off again at 180. Um, but I still think they ought to re rethink and restructure Comcare. Again, give the subsidy directly to individuals and let them choose any private plan of their choice. The market exclusivity is up, a new plan joined, but I don't think uh, limiting choice to five uh, MCO plans is sufficient. I think you need to have a competitive marketplace, more innovative health insurance designs. Uh, on the insurance market reforms, I think they need to extend the defined contribution plans from the pilot project, get it up and get it going. You know, it's, ta it's taking long enough. Add some sort of risk adjustment mechanism to facilitate consumer choice in this group framework. Uh, that was part of the reason it was slowed. Um, 
because there was pushback from insurers. There was also some pushback from brokers. Um, I think they need to improve on the early experience with voluntary plans. This shows that part-time and contractual workers are just the hard to reach, uh, the uninsured who are really hard to find, uh, or they have coverage elsewhere. But we need to learn from that experience and build on it uh, because the take-up was just very low. And I think in general there needs to be more deregulation. The state has a number of benefit mandates that have added $1.3 billion a year to healthcare costs in the state, and that's unacceptable. You need more uh, flexibility in order to foster innovation for plan design, both in the connector and in the private markets. Um, and on the individual employer mandates, I think there are transparent alternatives to an individual mandate, including accounts with bonds, such as what Mitt Romney originally proposed, uh, or automatic enrollment. And you know, we've learned lessons from 401k in this respect. It's sort of libertarian paternalism, right? You can get about 80% reduction in the uninsured is what they've shown. And so they could perhaps do better with auto enrollment without the perverse uh, effects of uh, a mandate in terms of the deadweight losses. Um, and I, I would just argue that there is no need for an employer mandate, especially with this defined contribution uh, option. Shared responsibility is a myth. It's all your money. So it's just you know, either causing you to lose your job, forcing employers to pay, or cutting into your wages. Uh, there was a recent Blue Cross and Blue Shield study that basically said shared responsibility. This is uh, such a, uh, a great victory in Massachusetts. And they looked at total health care spending in the state and said, look, the share of the total is still divided equally among, among employers and individuals and government. And well, I guess that they're not economists, but they don't know the difference between marginal analysis and total or aggregate analysis. And so I, I think if you looked on the margin, uh, I think who, who bared the cost was totally different. Uh, I, I think you would find a different answer. They sort of obscured things by the way they studied it, by construction. Um, the last thing I'd say is Medicaid expansion. This was never fully accounted for in the reforms financing. All the numbers I've shown you, even the ones for Medicaid expansion, showed uh, enrolling people who were uh, part of the expansion population or by reinstating benefits, but didn't account for the, those who are already eligible but not enrolled, and that is a sizable portion of that 76,000. And so where the cost lies in this is, is actually in the Medicaid expansion, not in ComCare. Again, ComCare was designed to be budget neutral, and it could have been and should have been. Um, the issue was with the Medicaid expansion. I think there are prudent ways to take care of this, transitioning healthy moms and kids into private coverage. For instance, we have kids between 200, 200 and 300 FPL on Medicaid but their parents are on ComCare. Why wouldn't they just be on a family plan? It doesn't really make much sense. Um, and so the last thing I would say, oh, on that point I would say, there was a recent Massachusetts Taxpayer Foundation study that looked at this issue, and they said that you know, the, the fact that the reform is over budget is, is a myth, sort of like what I'm saying, but what they forgot to tell you is the Medicaid piece. And so where I'll be honest with you is say, the part I didn't really support uh, at all, I, there's a lot of parts I didn't like, um, the Medicaid element is the, the fact that it's over budget. Uh, and the last thing is this cost and quali quality. Um, I think the way to get to um, cost uh, reductions and quality improvements through transparency, not government rate setting. I think the state's going in the wrong direction. They'll, they'll later regret that. But um, I think we can talk a little more about that in the Q&A. So sorry for running long. Thanks, Greg. Uh, our final speaker today is Greg Scanlon. He's a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute and the founder and director of Consumers for Healthcare Choices. Uh, prior to starting that organization, he worked at a number of uh, Washington-based think tanks, including the uh, extremely prestigious Cato Institute. Uh, he's also a founder and executive director of the Council for Affordable Health Insurance. Turn things over to Greg. Can I pull this up here? Yeah, yeah I'd forgotten about that... Uh about that thing about uh, 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 the, the blues saying that, uh, that the cost increases didn't really matter because everybody was paying the same proportion as they were before. And yet um, the cost increase, as I recall, went up 28 percent from 2007 to 2008. 28 uh, percent. 28 percent, yeah, yeah. I mean, astonishing. In one year, 28 percent. Uh, I don't think any jurisdiction in the country has ever seen anything like that, even back in the 70s. Um, let's see. Can we bring this up? All righty then. Slideshow. Right. I hate doing this. I'm a Mac guy, and it's a lot easier. How do you do this? Right. Good. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, I've been at this for a long, long time, and 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 I still feel like Alice in Wonderland when it comes to when it comes to looking at health policy uh, discussions and health reform initiatives. Uh, I mean, it seems like a very topsy-turvy world to me, where um, uh, people never say what they mean and they never mean what they say. Um, uh, it is it's ex- extraordinary. I mean, we're still. We're still worrying about things like fee for service versus capitation, and 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 I thought that was all settled back in the 90s when 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 we tried imposing capitation on the American people, and they didn't like it very much uh, because because basically uh, it was rationing their care. There was something called the managed care backlash back then, and here we are trying to breathe life back into it again. It's 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 astonishing. Um, in fact. Uh, Again, looking back in history, uh, uh, it was 21 years ago that Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis passed at then at, at that time a universal health reform bill that he, when he predicted Massachusetts will be the first state in the country to enact universal health insurance, and he ran for president on that. Uh, a year later, Oregon Governor Barbara Roberts said, "Today, our dreams of providing effective and affordable health care." To all Oregonians have come true, so I guess Oregon, uh, Oregon solved all of its problems, and it doesn't need to worry anymore. Uh, Ninety-two Tennessee Governor Ned McWhorter promised that Tennessee will now cover at least 95 percent of its citizens, and uh, good old Howard Dean in 1992 said, "This is an incredible, exciting moment that should make all Vermonters proud." When he enacted universal health coverage up in Vermont. Now, it's interesting that since then, all of these laws have been repealed. They all failed. They didn't do what the politicians promised they would do, what's new. <laughs> uh, and, and, and yet we keep going back to the same thing, the same empty promises, the same uh, uh, optimistic hopes. And uh, uh, we never seem to learn from experience. It's, it's astonishing to me. Uh, in my role as Alice the Wonderland, I see an entire city here full of red queens who say that this and that means just what I want it to mean without any definitions. Um, one person that's not here in Washington is uh, Bob Lendon. And, and as far, for, for my money, Bob Lendon is the only public opinion surveyor that's worth paying attention to on health care issues. Um, uh, 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 he's amazing. And back before Massachusetts enacted their laws. He did a lot of sur- public opinion surveys on it. And this is way too small. I apologize. I, I thought we'd have a bigger screen. Um, but, but essentially, one of the things Blendon does is he doesn't just ask the first question, do you like health care reform? Whoopee, 75% of the population says yes. He then asks follow-up questions and, and, and drills down deeper into it. For instance, um, uh, this first bullet, and I'm not going to read the rest of them, um, 82% of respondents favored expanding existing state programs, but when told when these programs would require raising taxes to pay for the cost, support dropped to 55%. And that was true on item after item after item in Massachusetts. You know, the, the, the first response was very favorable when he fleshed it out a little bit and talked about the implications of doing that. Uh, the favorability dropped dramatically, and that's still happening today. But, but more importantly, uh, Blendon found that support for the uh, individual mandate, and to focus on that for a minute, has grown from 52% in 2003 in Massachusetts to 58% in 2008. But uh, interestingly, the people that are least affected by the individual mandate are the ones most likely to support it. Uh, for instance, people with incomes of over 75,000 are 69% in favor of an individual mandate, uh, while people with incomes between 25 and 50,000 only 49% support it. College graduates, 69% support the individual mandate. People with high school or less, only 45% support it. So, so the elite in Massachusetts, it's all in favor of telling the 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 great unwashed what they should be doing. Um, but in fact, of the people directly affected by the individual mandate, um, Blendon asked those folks too, and 22% said that the law is helping me, and 60% said that this law is hurting me. Uh, 14% said my costs have gone down. 
51% said my costs have gone up. Now, maybe Massachusetts could get away with that because Massachusetts had a relatively low ratio of uninsured when the law was passed, uh, 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 10% or there, thereabouts. But some states, like California, have 20% 20 uninsured. And does California want 20% of the population saying, the law you just passed is hurting me? Does Texas want 25% of its population saying, the law that you just passed is hurting me? If we're concerned about the uninsured, shouldn't we be concerned about helping, not hurting them? Um, I was struck by an article in the Boston Globe um, uh, about a year after the law passed, uh, uh, or, or it might have been the Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, a woman was interviewed and, sa and, and said about her hopes so now that she got coverage. She was very hopeful, but, but those hopes were dashed when she found out she couldn't see a doctor. You know, she had this new insurance card, was going to go see a doctor. She couldn't find a doctor who would take her. They were all too busy. So she said, why is this helping me? How is this helping me? What's the point of having an insurance card if I can't find a doctor? And in fact, the use of the emergency rooms has soared 17% to 2.5 million visits in 2007. And although the numbers of uninsured patients was cut in half, um, this is uninsured patients, not uninsured people. The percentage using community health centers fell fell only by 10 percentage points from um, uh, 2006 to 2007. Indigent care payments have not decreased. Indigent care payments to community health centers are still as high as they've ever been. And uh, uh, overall health spending, I guess on this one it says 23%. It's either 23 or 20, 28%. In one year, from 2007 to 2008, is this what the nation is looking forward to? Here? Are we looking forward to 23 to 28 percent annual increases in spending? All right. One of the things that's very, very concerning of me, and this is, this is new stuff that I got from, from from different sources, and I don't have a solid analysis. I just have some questions. So bear with me here. Um, again, unfortunately, the. The slide is slow, is, is small. The uninsured rate in Boston, in um, uh, this is a three-year average rate of uninsured uh, developed by eBree 2005-2007, 0 0.9.4%. The physician capacity per 1,000 population uh, was the highest in the country at four, four and a half physicians per 1,000 population. And yet, after, after uh, health reform in Massachusetts, the cumulative waiting times was 248 days. Now, I should explain that number. This is the, uh, uh, a survey was done about what the wait would be to see a cardiologist, a dermatologist, uh, an orthopedic surgeon, an obstetrician, and a family practice. And, and, and this particular survey just kind of added all those up. So it's not like you're waiting 248 days to see one doctor, but but it's a way of comparing regions. You know, uh, if you take all five um, uh, and add the waiting times together, what does it amount to? Now, Boston, Massachusetts had one of the lowest rates of uninsured. It had the highest physician capacity of any state in the country, and it ended up with with cumulative waiting times of 248. Now, Pennsylvania was the next highest. Philadelphia, particularly. Uh, in Pennsylvania, it's 11.3% uninsured. The um, physician capacity is 3.32, and the waiting times currently are 135. Now, post-reform in Pennsylvania, what will that uh, balloon to? It's a question I don't have the answer to, but somebody ought to be wondering about that. Um, and again, it, it, this, it, this chart looks at Los Angeles, it looks at Houston, it looks at Minneapolis. All of these cities have, have much lower physicians per, per, per capita. They have much fewer uninsured than Massachusetts did, and they currently have much uh, uh, shorter waiting periods to see a physician. Um, 
if we reform all of their health care systems the way Massachusetts was done, what's going to happen? With all these newly insured people suddenly coming in to see a doctor. And if they can't see a doctor, what's going to happen to all the emergency rooms in the country? In fact, already we know that, 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 that the overcapacity of emergency room is not based on the uninsured. It's based on people that have insurance coverage but generally can't find a doctor. Two minutes. Okay. All right. Um, I also did this. You might want to do this yourself. Uh, I went to the connector, entered uh, uh, Boston uh, uh, zip code uh, to look at the uh, premiums for, uh, for, for coverage in the connector. I did the same thing in Connecticut through e-health insurance. Uh, a male 50-year-old 50, 50 non-smoker with an effective date of this coming August uh, the lowest premium in, in the connector was $319 a month. Uh, Connecticut had kind of similar coverage for $198 a month. Um, the highest premium in, in, through the connector was almost $1,000 a month, $995. Uh, similar coverage was available in Connecticut for half that price. And I did the same thing for a 35-year-old female. Um, uh, and, and this is a little fun game you can play yourself. Um, uh, uh, essentially, in Hartford, Connecticut, you can buy insurance coverage for half the cost of what it costs in, uh, through the connector. Massachusetts would have been better if it simply allowed its citizens to go across this border and buy coverage in Connecticut. They could have bought it for half the price that it cost through the connector and a whole lot less administrative hassle. All right. I just want to make a real quick point here. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, all of these reform proposals miss the essential problem. The essential problem in healthcare is not fee-for-service medicine. Everything we do in the course of our lives, we do on a fee-for-service basis. You know, you get, you get your oil changed, you get a haircut, you hire a baby, you pay a fee, you get a service. None of it is particularly inflationary. The unique thing about healthcare, and I've been saying this for 20 years, and it still doesn't seem to penetrate <laughs> anywhere, is third-party payment. Third-party payment is what's inflationary. If Michael Tanner is paying my bills, um, uh, I will rack up a lot of bills. If he promises to pay all the donuts I eat at no cost to me, I'm going to eat a lot of donuts. Um, uh, I was a lobbyist for a long time with the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. Um, I would go around to meetings of the National Governors Association that always met in the fanciest hotels in St. Louis or Ritz-Carlton. I would check into the hotel. Never once did I ever ask what this room is going to cost. Never once. The Blues were paying for it. What did I care? It was totally free to me. A couple years after that, I left the Blues and started trying to cover the same meetings on my own dime. And all of a sudden, instead of staying at the Ricks Carlton, I would stay at the Motel 6 a mile down the road and, and, and come drive back to the meetings at the Ritz. Uh, Third-party payment is always inflationary. And third-party payment is not the same thing as insurance. Insurance is a two-party contract. Third-party payment is a triangular relationship where you have a consumer, an insurance company, a doctor, and, a doctor, and the insurance company pays the doctor to deliver a service. In Blue Cross parlance, that's called service benefits. You're not getting a monetary benefit. You're getting a service benefit. And these triangular relationships never work in human affairs because no one leg of the triangle knows what the other two people are doing. So, so as a consumer, I don't know what the relationship is between the insurance company and my doctor. What I do know is that my doctor is being paid by the insurance company and not by me. So who is he accountable to? Who is he working for? Is he working for the insurance company? He's not working for me. I'm not paying him. Um, and the insurance company is way too interested in, in what's happening between the consumer, me, and my doctor, so, to the point that they become little peeping toms peering into these intimate moments in our lives. It's not appropriate for them to be there. It, it is third-party payment that is destroying American health care, and not just American health care, by the way, um, uh, uh, health care around the world. Blendon, just very quickly, uh, um, uh, Blendon was the first person to do a survey of five English-speaking countries. 
And he asked the, the question, when looking at your own health care system, do you think it only needs minor change, it's pretty good? Does it need fundamental change, or does, does it need to re, be completely rebuilt from scratch? Um, uh, this is cited a lot in the United States, because, because Americans, only about 20% of us say that, that our system is pretty good, it only needs minor change. 80% think it needs fundamental change. And needs, uh, or needs to be completely rebuilt from scratch. The amazing thing that Blinden did, which uh, no one else had done, is, is he asked the same question to people in the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And they all said the same thing, pretty much. All five countries, their people said, about 20% of their people said, our, uh, our system's pretty good, it only needs minor change. 80% in all five countries said either it needs to be completely rebuilt from scratch or it needs fundamental change. And my argument is that all five countries use third-party payment to pay for health care, and, and, and they're having the exact same problems that we are. Maybe slightly different problems, but, but, but none of them have solved the health care dilemma. And I'll leave it there. Thank you.